In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water team with living creatures, let birds fly above the earth, across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth 
and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In these times of uncertainty, we can rest assured that we have built our houses. In fact, we've built our very lives on an immovable rock. Uh, just like the wise man in Jesus' parable. There's a rock beneath our feet of a God who loves us, a God who cares for us, and a God who's revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he is the one, therefore, who we put our trust in. Yet when Jesus came into the world, he stood on thousands of years of God already relating to his people. And in fact, Jesus spoke into the future, millennia into the future, about how God would continue to interact with his people. And because we spend much of our time in church looking at the middle of the Bible, the sermon series, which is going to cover six weeks, will look at the beginning and the end of the Bible. The first three chapters in Genesis and the last two chapters in Revelation. And it would be so useful if you could have your Bible open in front of you to Genesis chapter 1 uh, for this time together. I do apologise for the long Bible reading, but it's so useful to get a really good grip on the context that we're going to be speaking from. And during this time, I invite you out into God's creation. Uh, my hope is that, especially for those who are in very confined spaces, that this walk in nature is going to be a well-received tonic. Uh, which you need. And we're going to divide our study into three sections. We'll start off by looking from Genesis 1 uh, at God. Genesis 1 starts off by talking about God first and foremost. That's number one. And then number two, uh, a God who is creator. And number three, uh, a God who is relational. So let's start with Genesis 1 speaks of God. So Genesis 1 speaks of God. The very first verse in the Bible starts this way. In the beginning, God. Before anything else existed, God existed. And this is a massive statement that sets up the rest of the Bible. Oxford professor uh, John Lennox comments on this verse, the central tenet of the biblical worldview is that the ultimate reality is God. You see, the worldview of the atheist starts with the universe, but the worldview of the Christian starts with God. When nothing else existed, when time didn't even exist, God existed. He is the one who is eternal, the one who is outside of time, outside of his creation. Lennox comments that this idea of a beginning is an immense problem for scientists. However, he sees, says that they believe it because the evidence points towards it. The difficulty that science ha scientists have is that of a creator. And therefore, the atheist Richard Dawkins asks the Christian John Lennox, who created God then? 
Now, Lennox loves this because he knows that two can play this game, and he quips back to Dawkins, so you believe that the universe created you, do you? Well, who created your creator? Now, it would be far from true to say that we can set up science versus God. In fact, some of the most famous scientists down the ages have been Christians. And I'd love to point to one who I think is quite topical for this, and his name is Arnold Penzias. In fact, he won a Nobel Prize for his work which led to the Big Bang Theory. And this is what he has said. He said, Astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing and delicately balanced to provide exactly the conditions required to support life. In the absence of an absurdly improbable accident, the observations of modern science seem to suggest an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. You see, when we state that science answers the questions of how the world is made, and the Bible answers the questions of why the world was made, we risk turning Yahweh into a God of the gaps, a God who is there to answer the questions that science can't answer. And I don't think that Yahweh will have that. You see, when science grows in its understanding of the world, a God of the gaps seems to become smaller and less relevant. A God of the gaps will decrease in importance, but the God who we encounter in the Bible is a God who gains glory through scientific discovery as we plumb the greater depths of his detailed creation. The God of the Bible is relevant to all of his creation and to all of our lives. So the eternal God is our starting point in our study, or in the words of the Oxford Don C.S. Lewis, I believe in Christianity, he says, as I believe that the sun has risen, not because I see it, but because by everything, uh, because uh, by it, I see everything else. So everyone needs a starting point, and as Christians, ours is God. Genesis 1 speaks of God. Now secondly, Genesis 1 speaks of a God who is creator. So Genesis 1 also speaks of a God who is creator. Uh, still in verse 1, and I promise that we'll move on soon, uh, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So here we find an eternal God, and we learn that he is the creator. And he created everything in the material universe. He created the heavens about us. He created the sky. He created the galaxies. And he created the earth with all its life and with all its beauty. And we find in this passage, uh, these verses to come, a series of, of God saids, uh, of God's word going out. And so this is our first encounter, therefore, with the Word of God. And you might recall uh, from John's Gospel, right at the beginning, 
uh, of his chapter 1. Uh, he takes us right back, in fact, to Genesis 1 at the beginning of the Bible, this very passage that we're in, and he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. So we find, in fact, Jesus at the very beginning. Uh, Jesus not made, uh, not part of creation, but there before everything came into being. And in fact, we also see the Holy Spirit. He's there hovering over the waters. So it's God, God's powerful word which births life. And you might ask the question, did creation involve evolution? Uh, you might also ask, were the seven days literally seven days? Well, I've got to say, if God is God, he's the one who is all-powerful, uh, then we can trust that he created uh, his creation in the way that he wanted to, with the forces of science and nature that he wanted to use, and those methods were up to him. One thing that I find quite useful is David Pawson's account. Uh, he's a theologian and uh, he compares God's creation of our world to a builder building a house. And he says, if a builder were to describe how to build a house, he might say something like this. He might say, well, you dig the foundation, you lay the foundation, uh, then you build the walls, uh, then you stick a, a roof on top, then you do the plumbing, then you do the electrics, and then you paint the house. And, and that's basically how you stick a house up. Now, anyone who's had any work done on their houses, uh, always built their house for themselves, knows that the building of a house is much, much more complicated than that. In fact, it, it involves quite a few things intertwined at the same time. And I've got to say that uh, the, the creation of our world, let alone uh, the, the, the galaxies around us, uh, surely is much, much more complicated and intertwined than building a house. But what we find in Genesis 1 is a simple explanation from God uh, that even we can understand. And so the important thing to note is that we trust a God who was behind and before creation, and a God who cares about what he created. And it's amazing that with every step of creation, God looks at it and he proclaims its goodness over and over again. He says, it is good. The earth and the seas are good. The vegetation is good. The sun and the moon, the birds, the fish and the animals. And I've got uh, sheep behind me with their young lambs. Uh, he says, they are good. As Professor Lennox writes, God is not some distant, deistic figure, uninterested in his work. He regards his creation with the enthusiasm and joy of a skillful artist who is delighted at what he has done. And so looking at the evidence of, of scientists and what they tell us, we've got to say that as Christians we shouldn't be embarrassed at all by the biblical account. As the Nobel Prize-winning Penzias, who we've mentioned before, has said, the best data we have 
are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. You see, the God of the Bible, the God who was there from the beginning and is the creator, understands science and evolution and everything else so much better than we ever could do. And it's amazing, he desires to communicate with us. He desires a relationship with us. He desires to partner with us, which takes us on to our next step. So we arrive in our third section, where we find that Genesis 1 speaks of a God who is relational. And in verses 26 and 27, mankind arrives on the scene, and this is what we read. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, did you spot both the, the plural and the singular in this passage, where mankind is made in our image, verse 26, and his image, that's God's image, verse 27. And so we find that before anything else existed, there was already a God who was both plural and singular. And this is where we first encounter the Trinity and the uh, heavenly council. Singular, as in there's one God, one substance, but plural, as in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this allows, in fact, for a God of relationship. It in fact means that God, in his very nature, can be called love. Without that plural nature, God couldn't be called love. And that plural nature needs to be one that's eternal for God to be love in his identity, in who he is. So this God of relationship created mankind in his image. And some have suggested that image can be better described as a verb than a noun in this place. Being in God's image involves doing. God rules over his creation and he calls mankind to bear his image on earth, to partner with him, if you like, in his work. So we are given delegated responsibility over everything in the sea and the sky and the land. This is a big job. We're told to fill the earth and to subdue it. In the next chapter of Genesis, we find a beautiful garden called Eden, which might not have needed much work, but there's every indication that the rest of the earth needed work to be done in it by mankind. It needed to be subdued, as we find in these verses. So God calls us to bear his image. He calls us to rule the earth. And we soon find out that God's image gets distorted. But in the beginning, in this very beginning, in this very first chapter, when we're made, we are very good 
in God's eyes. Now, because we are the image bearers, uh, we are told that we aren't to have idols, and this comes up in the commandments. Idols bear the image of a God. But you see, God's people do that already. We are the image bearers. We make the invisible God visible to those around us. And that's a gigantic responsibility. Thousands of years later, Jesus was challenged about taxes. This is the, the Jesus who was the second Adam, the undistorted image bearer, the one who is described as the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And Jesus, uh, when he was challenged, requested a denarius, and he asked, whose image is on this coin? Well, the answer was obvious. It is Caesar's image that is on the coin. So Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, pay taxes to Caesar because they're his. And he says, give to God what is God's. Do you see what Jesus was getting at? He was saying, you bear God's image. Give to him your very self. Taxes needed to be paid. That is simple. But we bear God's image. So the deeper question is, how are we doing at this task of bearing God's image, of ruling in his authority over his kingdom on this earth? Now, some ruling and uh, uh, some of what we do on this kingdom on earth might look like using God's supernatural power. Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God by proclaiming the good news, and he did it with healings and signs and wonders. But most of what we're called to do, in fact, won't be, uh, won't be like that. It'll be like ruling in the natural remit in the area that God has called us to. And this is going to be our day-to-day -day work. He has called us uh, to exercise our cultural mandate. We are called to create an order in the world that works. The theologian Tim Keller has a great de definition of work. And he says, work is rearranging the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. This is what we've been commissioned to do. The reordering of the natural uh, materials in the world to cause flourishing and thriving uh, amongst nature and amongst people. American pastor John Mark Homer has a really helpful understanding of the integrated relationships that are necessary for us to fulfill this cultural mandate. He, he starts off with a simple cup of coffee bought from a coffee shop. And he says, you know, what does it take to get this cup of coffee into my hands? Well, it took a, a, a barista uh, to, to pour the coffee, but then it took someone else, in fact, a whole company of people to make the coffee machine. It took builders to build uh, the, the coffee shop, and, and those probably included plumbers and electricians and architects and various other people as well. And then it took uh, someone to transport, in fact, probably many people to transport this, uh, these coffee beans all the way here 
from Peru. And then it took a farmer, uh, probably with many helpers, to grow the coffee beans. And it took someone to come over to Peru and to initiate the relationship with the farmer. And then the farmer needed education and he needed a family. And so in fact, to get a single cup of coffee into your hands requires a great, great many people all doing their bit. Uh, and so just for um, us to, to function in the way that we do, just for our lives to adopt the pattern that, that they adopt, uh, we require a huge number of people to do their little bit. Now, the, the fascinating question that you might be asking as we're thinking about just getting a cup of coffee into someone's hands is what happens when all of this is suspended, all the, the intricate bits and pieces inside our culture and how it works um, are suspended by governments around the world as they protect us and our health, uh, protecting us from COVID-19. And you might also be asking the question, how has the Lord called you during this time to continue with your cultural mandate to rule and to subdue and to bear his image during this time? And then you might also think that, that some of what we do normally in our culture probably doesn't really accord very well with God in that it doesn't cause people to flourish. And so you might be asking, what would you like to be doing differently when everything restarts in order to cause and uh, to create that, that flourishing uh, that God calls us to when he wants us to rule as his image bearers? Now we've come quite a long way in Genesis 1. Uh, we've looked at a, a God, number one, who is creator, number two, and who is relational and therefore calls us to rule alongside him. And, uh, and, and this is an amazing place to start. And all of this is just in the first chapter of the Bible.